0: So we're going to do Habakkuk together for three weeks. Uh, And you have been warned. Now, there are one or two things that should be said about Habakkuk. One is that every week gets better in the text. So if you read it, you'll find Habakkuk 1 is is a a struggle. Habakkuk 2, it's getting a lot better. And Habakkuk 3 is amazing. And I hope that you'll enjoy it. Uh, as much as I do the other thing to say is profit always causes a bit of a stir and I've talked about prophecy here before, get out of the idea first of all um, of the thus saith the Lord business normally that means I am feeling insecure and not sure if I have something from the Lord or not, so I'll make certain by saying thus saith the Lord not helpful the second thing about prophecy is it doesn't have to be accompanied by heavy breathing. <laughs> it can all be perfectly normal. And it can be an application of stuff that happens in life. Uh, my spiritual dad, uh, through my, my years of, through I suppose my first 20 or 30 years of ministry, was a guy named Alex Buchanan, who if you were a European you would have heard of. Because he was the leading prophetic voice in Europe through the 70s, 80s, and 90s, and Alex was great to work with, but he was a bit of a scary character because just occasionally he could come out with stuff. Now, I know we've all got the picture of what a prophet should look like. You know, um, forgive me if I cause offence. It's just part of being English, and. The normal prophet for us is of course someone who is about six foot two, uh, who's got a very thick head of hair, who's got a very deep, deep tan, who lives in California, uh, who is uh, pretty wealthy, uh, writes a lot of books, uh, and that's the the prophet that we're used to. Now uh, my friend Alex was somewhat different. Um, Alex uh, was in his five foot something he was short he was um, crippled he was paralysed down half of his body uh, from a stroke when he was young he had nearly died 20 times before he finally made it to glory tried hard lots of times without ever being deliberate about it Uh, Alex was Just one of those people who was extraordinary. His wife, Flora, went about in a a buggy, motorized buggy, because she had multiple sclerosis of a kind that completely disabled her. So everything you think of, a prophet being, Alex was the opposite. And at one point in his career, during the 1960s, now, You've got to get you've got to get some English understanding to get this. 1960s was a very famous era for Britain. You'd had Elvis Presley and everything in the 50s, but in the 1960s we got ahead of you. Jerry and the Pacemakers, Herman's Hermits, uh, the Rolling Stones, the Beatles. Now the Beatles were operating in Liverpool. And when the 60s dawned, that's where they came out of, from the Cavern Club, and that's when, in these lovely sets of humour, the Lord placed Alex Buchanan in Liverpool and gave him a church there. Talk about out of place. And Alex was chopping wood uh, in his yard on Saturday afternoon. And it was getting a bit difficult with the church. The church was pretty small, and they had a choir. And that explained all the problems with worship that that church went through. The choir sat in their special seats, and they sang, and that's the story. And... um, on this particular Saturday, Alex was, was out and uh, having a break from his wood chopping, and there was the lady who led the choir. And he felt he would go and give her a word from the Lord, so he went up to her and said, My dear sister, my dear sister, it's great to see you. I'm really looking forward uh, to Sunday, but I'd like to do something a little different. I believe that the Lord might want us to come together to worship, and not have the choir and the congregation separate. But I believe the Lord would have us come together and worship him together. And so the dear lady who who led the choir uh, looked at at Alex and said, well, Pastor, um, frankly, we don't care what God might or might not be saying. We are the choir and we're sticking. (laughs) Now remember, this guy is a prophet and he's the real deal. When he got back to his wood he seized his hatchet in his hand and marched down the few yards to the church, let himself in, and hewed the choir stalls into pieces before (laughs) the Lord. When the choir arrived on Sunday morning, there were no special seats for them, and everybody worshipped God together, and that was the beginning of the move of God in that church, which was one of the very first that came into the renewal that was going to sweep England. But it started because a prophet simply followed his call. He didn't stand up and yell, didn't stand up and shout, just hacked the choir stalls into pieces, which is the kind of thing (laughs) that Habakkuk would have done. So let's listen to the nice, quiet, gentle message that Habakkuk brought. The oracle that Habakkuk the prophet saw. Important distinction there. O Lord, how long shall I cry for help and you won't hear? Or cry to you violence and you won't save? Why do you make me see iniquity and why do you idly look at wrong? Destruction and violence are before me. Strife and contention arise. So the law is paralysed and justice never goes forth. For the wicked surround the righteous, so justice goes forth perverted. Look among the nations and see, wonder and be astounded, for I am doing a work in your days that you wouldn't believe if told. For behold, I am raising up the Chaldeans, that bitter and hasty nation, who march through the breadth of the earth to seize dwellings not their own. They are dreaded and fearsome, their justice and dignity go forth from themselves. Their horses are swifter than leopards, more fierce than the evening wolves. Are you not from everlasting, O Lord, my God, my Holy One? We shall not die. O Lord, you've ordained them as a judgment, and you, O Rock, have established them for reproof. You who are of purer eyes than to see evil and cannot look at wrong, why do you idly look at traitors and remain silent when the wicked swallows up the man more righteous than he? You make mankind like the fish of the sea, like crawling things that have no ruler. He brings all of them up with a hook. He drags them out with his net. He gathers them in his dragnet so he rejoices and is glad. Therefore he sacrifices to his net and makes offerings to his dragnet. For by them he lives in luxury and his food is rich. Is he then to keep on emptying his net and mercilessly killing nations forever? I will take my stand at my watchpost and station myself on the tower and look out to see what he will say to me. And what I will answer concerning my complaint. Now you see why I warned you right at the start. That this is not milk that we are going to try to digest. This is difficult. Now I need to confess right from the start that there are three parts of what you call your Bible that I do not believe are inspired of God or necessarily fallible or even true. It's always important to confess right at the beginning. These things are helpful. The three parts that I have real problems with are the index, the chapter headings, and the maps at the back. (laughs) One of the problems is that most Christians do believe that they are truly part of Scripture, and they are not. The chapter headings were put in on a French stagecoach on a particularly bumpy road 600 years ago. And as that stagecoach is going along this bumpy road, this poor guy is trying to put in the chapter headings, and time after time he got it awfully wrong. One of the places you cannot end Habakkuk chapter 1 at, at, at the, what we call the end of the chapter, uh, which is verse 17. You have to end it at the end of chapter 2, verse 1. Misses by a verse. That's really important, as you will see as we go through. The next thing is, I know this stuff is not easy, and you look at it and think, where on earth are we going to go? Well, let me explain. I always uh, use four points. The reason is, I was told at theological seminary that you always should have three, and I'm a rebel by nature, so I have always used four. (laughs) And it works for me anyway. When you look at Habakkuk chapter 1, you actually find there are four things. And if you're taking notes, this bit's worth taking down simply because it explains the chapter. When you're looking at Habakkuk 1, you'll find that, first of all, and it's basically verses 2 to 4, first of all, you find that God is wanting you to speak to him. Then the next part, You find that God is wanting to speak to you. And then the next part, you find that none of it is going to make much sense. And you won't want to agree with it. And the last part is that God is actually there and wanting to speak. That's why this is all so important. God wants you to talk to Him, God wants to talk to you. It's not all going to be plain and obvious but he's the God who is there and he's never going to leave you or forsake you. So we're going to do those four as we look at Habakkuk chapter one because that's what makes the chapter actually make sense. You need to know something about the circumstance and you need to know something about how prophecy works. There are two Greek words that we employ for the New Testament. One of those is exegesis. You've probably heard that word before. The other is eisegesis, which you may never have heard before. They're both perfectly normal Greek words. Exegesis means what you read out of a passage, what it actually says. Eisegesis means what you read into a passage, what you would like it to say. And you will discover if you listen um, to preachers that probably we fall into 50-50, preaching what we would like the passage to say or what we actually find it does say. Because it's so much simpler when God agrees with me than me having to agree with him. And I'm being deathly serious because the great danger is that time and again We know what God should say on this. Unfortunately, time and again, you find he doesn't. But that's very difficult. That's where you get silly ideas like, God wants to bless you. Really? Really? Now, that's a bit tough because if you actually look at Scripture, you find that God wants you to bless him. And he wants to make you a blessing to everybody else. And that's the blessing that he gives to you. It's not just giving you everything that you would want him to give to you. It's giving you everything that your world needs, your community needs, your family needs. And it's making you a blessing. But it's not quite the way we would want it to work. All of that is really important for Habakkuk because the book that parallels Habakkuk best in Scripture is the book of Job. Habakkuk has a pretty rough deal in life, just as Job did, and yet God uses him mightily. But it's not the way around that we would expect it to be, which is why it's an unusual book to choose to speak on, and a very important one, because of what it says. Are you still with me? Wonderful. That's a relief. We've still got there. Habakkuk is there for all the things you would expect a prophet to be. Happy, bold, wealthy, moving forwards, blessed in all he does because he's approved of God. Actually, none of that's true. He's frustrated, frustrated, perplexed, deeply unhappy, unhappy, and none of it seems to work. And All of that comes out, if you read that first chapter, this is not a guy who's on top. This is a guy who's getting a bit desperate because it just isn't working in the way that you and I might think it should. And so you find that coming through time and again in these chapters. He starts off by asking the two basic questions that we all ask. How long is it going to take you to sort it out, Lord? And why is it all going wrong? Good question. Because what he sees all around him is trouble, suffering, plundering, violence, strife, and contention. And as is going to be revealed in these chapters, he ain't seen nothing yet, because it's going to get worse and worse and worse. This is basically the land of Judah in the 7th century. This is Judah, where their king, Josiah, who was such a great and a godly man, at the end of his life got it wrong. And in the year 609, led his armies against Pharaoh Necho of Egypt and was killed and the armies were defeated. His son, Jehoahaz, uh, became king for a matter of weeks and then Pharaoh Necho took (coughs) Jehoahaz off to Egypt and took Jehoiakim, who was the older brother, who was a weak man and made him king. And Everything is set up for the vast great armies of Babylon to come and take the land of Judah. It's going to take them uh, 23 years to actually get round to it, but that is what's ultimately going to happen. And Habakkuk is beginning to see the way the cookie grumbles, beginning to see what's going on, and therefore he's saying, how long? Why? What's going on? Now, I know that this isn't like uh, America at all, but you see, Israel in those days was a very litigious society. It wasn't interested in fulfilling the law of God. It was interested in getting the law to fulfill what they Needed. Now, I'm sorry, remember my difference between ex- eisegesis and exegesis. I know we wouldn't like Scripture to say that, it's just what it says. And what you've got happening is pretty awful. The land is riddled with violence. The government is riddled with corruption. Everybody is trying to advance themselves And suddenly Habakkuk breaks out, probably one of the temple prophets, and he comes out with the idea that we can still talk to God about it. We don't have to leave it where it is. You may be going through all kinds of difficulties. Your kids may be miles from God. Your family may be riddled with sickness. Your marriage may be at one of those points where you'll say, what, what, uh, did I marry him? Couldn't I have done better? <laughs> there are, <laughs> thank you, there are <laughs> all kinds of actions and reactions and Habakkuk wants to say you can talk to God about it. He can actually explain to you what he's doing. You're not left on your own. But our problem is we're still caught in the ideas that, oh, everything's got to be fine. I'm a Christian. I should have a get out of jail free card. Everything should work out. Instead of actually reading our Bibles and discovering the more you go through, the more struggle you face, the more blessed you are by God. I'm sorry. Perry and I know each other, so I know I'm going to get away with this. But you see, when it starts going wrong, as it will, whether it goes wrong with the job, with the home, with your health, even with your marriage, whatever goes wrong does not mean God has left you. Because God is still there for you. It means that he thinks you're worth testing means he thinks you're worth struggling with. And you can always turn to him and talk to him and find he's there for you. And may the two of you never forget it. Because when things go wrong, that doesn't mean it's all going to collapse. It means that God thinks it's worth pushing you so that more happens. I was 29 years old when I met Mike Morris Mike was a wonderful guy. Oxford University, does that mean anything? Which is about as high as it gets. He never, ever went to a lecture. Because he didn't need it. One of those appalling characters, who is just too bright to need to attend classes. And in Britain you don't have to attend classes, you just have to pass the examinations. And Mike could pass the examinations easily enough, so he didn't bother to go to the class. As life went on, finally, at the end of his time in Oxford, he met Jesus and surrendered his life to Jesus. He also met Katie, who he fell deeply in love with. And so Mike and Kate got ready to get married. But things weren't going too well in their lives. They got mixed up with some people who weren't being helpful. And that's when I met Mike and Kate and they asked for some help. And so we began to work through uh, the Christian life and at one point they said, would you actually help us when we leave university to find what God has for us? And so Mike went off to live with my friend Graham Kendrick who's going to be coming to lead worship here in a few months' time which on earth that happened is amazing. And Kate came to live with Ruth and I. And I ended up marrying Mike and Katie. And we ended up working together for years for Christ. And Mike did some pretty incredible things in ministry. He was the guy who started the World Evangelical Fellowship Religious Liberty Commission, which is the body of people who work to set Christians free when they're arrested for sharing the faith. It's an an incredible work. Mike put all of that together. Mike got involved in working in South Africa. And Nelson Mandela, um, it was around the time that Mandela was going to become president. But Mandela, whatever you think of Mandela one way or the other, it wasn't that Mandela was a very committed Christian that Mandela was working for the peace of his country and Mike had the job of trying to get white and black evangelical Christians to work together in South Africa. Uh, Mike did some amazing things in his life. And we used to, that friendship that we had together went on for years until one day we were having um, a vacation in France with Ruth and I had children. Mike and Kate couldn't have children. So we had our four and shared them. And uh, the agreement was that if anything ever happened to Ruth and I, then Mike and Kate had got the four kids. uh, It was a wonderful way to improve their prayer lives. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, the time came on holiday in the Dordogne in the south of France, where Mike... um, I got a bit worried because one night Kate slept, stumbled. Bit by bit we started to notice that something was wrong with her mobility. That was the beginning of the disease that was ultimately going to kill her. For years she lost mobility, she lost coordination, And as she lost everything, Mike ended up giving up his work and just nurturing his wife Uh, and looking after her and caring for her until ultimately she died. One of the sorrows of my life is that when Katie died, Ruth and I were in uh, Southern Sudan, weren't we? You were there and I was in Southern Sudan. I was somewhere. No, it was in Africa. I couldn't get out. And so one of my kids had to go and do the funeral. But Mike had been so faithful and done so much. When his wife died, it was sort of kind of interesting to see what would happen. You know, how deep does your faith go? And what he did was he started to establish a ministry, working with people um, who were ill, had lost, suffered loss, got so many questions about God, and he'd found so many answers. Not those pat answers, but the genuine stuff from what he'd seen God do for him. And he remarried and is still in ministry today, doing some great and incredible things. But how he did that when everything he had, he lost. Doesn't make sense. But it did f- for him, because when he lost everything else, he found that God was still there. And Kate, for the day she died, knew that God was still there for her. Uh, as Mike did. And when I'd just been in, in Britain, um, I, I went to the World Cup you may be surprised that the World Cup is on. You may think, oh, you mean the women's soccer? No, I don't mean the women's soccer. I mean the real thing, the Cricket World Cup. (laughs) And uh, my oldest son, Chris, came to join Mike and I uh, watching England beat South Africa in, in the Cricket World Cup. It was amazing to sit with Mike all day and not to hear a word of complaint a word of bitterness, a word of upset, because the God who is there was still there for him. He'd found that he could talk to God in his pain. (coughs) He'd found that he could talk to God in his misery and his disappointment. He'd found that he knew a God who was there for him. Isn't it great? And it's wonderful that God is like that. One of the things that Mike did in his life was as I had once discipled Mike he discipled various other people the first person he ever decided he ever discipled was I have got to remember got on mute Pete there was a guy named Pete Gregg author preacher and uh, happy father's day for those of you who are dads I want to bring you Pete Gregg's prayer for father's day We pray today for dads, for new dads and for granddads and stepdads and adoptive dads and solo dads, for bald dads and bearded dads, skinny dads and cuddly dads, for dads who tell terrible jokes and dads who still dance to YMCA, (laughs) for dads who know how to fix things and dads who just pretend they know how to fix things. Father to the fatherless, we pray for those for whom this day is sadder than it is happy and for those who feel they have failed. We pray for those who are grieving children they never had, those who are missing their dads or their children even more than usual. Father God, at a time of so much pain, Where so many dads are distant, absent, or even abusive, we lean into your ever-present love and healing. You are faithful and kind, especially to those of us orphaned, abandoned, and hurt. As the psalmist says, even if my father abandons me, the Lord will hold me close. Father of mercy, heal our many hurts and restore the dignity, the strength and integrity of fatherhood in our families, in our communities, and in our nations. As the Apostle Paul says, I kneel before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name, and I pray that you may know love. And finally, Lord, for all those poor people everywhere who forgot Father's Day, we ask that you would bless them this day too. In your abundant grace and manifold mercy, with the discovery of chocolate and half-decent cards in well-stocked convenience stores that are still open. Amen. (laughs) You've got a God who you can talk to. You may never have started that process, but the God who is there wants you to speak to him. The God who loves you wants you to open a dialogue with himself. But then it's not just the God you can talk to. (coughs) He's the God who wants to talk to you. And that's what Habakkuk was going to discover. That this God, who is so there for us, actually wants to come and speak to us. In our five stages of grief, our isolation, our anger, our denial, our sense of bargaining, and our depression, the isolation, you listen, you don't save, the anger, why, why, justice never prevails, the denial, my holy one, we will not die, the bargaining, your eyes are too pure, you cannot tolerate wrong, the depression that says why, why. (laughs) <laughs> this God is still there and he's wanting to speak to us in everything that we go through. He doesn't want to stop ministering to our needs. Ruth and I have seen it all around the world. She'll tell you.
1: Um. Just because this is a story from Africa doesn't mean that um, things like this don't happen here. But I just want to tell you a story from Rwanda. Um, I am so, I so love going to Africa and seeing these courageous women. They are the movers and shakers. We've just been in Turkey. I got sick and tired of seeing men. Forgive me. But... Every cafe outside, there are men, 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 men men, smoking away, playing games all day long. And there, the poor women are back home doing the work, you know, looking after the kids, doing the. It's just incredible, isn't it? Yes. Please nod. (laughs) A reluctant nod. I kept saying, I'm sick and tired of men. Sorry, that was in Turkey, okay? But uh, it's very similar in Africa, too, that the women are out at 4 or 5 in the morning trying to dig the ground with a tiny little hoe or something. But I met a beautiful girl in Rwanda, very tall, very elegant, stunningly good-looking, called Julienne. Julienne had had uh, four children. When she had her fourth child, a boy, she was desperately ill. And she had uh, blood transfusions. And from those blood transfusions, she actually contracted AIDS. So nothing, she had done nothing to, to bring this disease on. It was a you know, medical, one of those things that happened a lot in Africa. And there's this beautiful girl. And I went to visit her, stunningly gorgeous looking. But she was slowly dying with AIDS. And in Africa, a large number, probably the majority of those who care for people dying from AIDS were young children. And uh, they would have to, at six, seven, eight, nine, ten, they would be nursing parents as they're dying. And uh, grandparents were sometimes there if they were still alive, but there's often a missing generation of parents. And Julianne thought how, she loved Jesus very much, how can I use my pain to be a blessing to others? And there's great pride and dignity as an African woman that you don't do anything that is humiliating or belittles you. But this lovely woman who loved Jesus decided that she would allow people to photograph her as she went through the most humbling and humiliating circumstances. And that these pictures were put together in a very simple book for children to understand. She had photos taken of her being put on a bedpan and going to the toilet. Photos of how to wash her and care for her. Things that are just unbelievable stories. In fact, her husband was very, very angry about it. But that book was used so powerfully to help young children in very simple form to care for their parents as they were dying from AIDS. She didn't sit in bitterness or why has this happened to me? She had done nothing to deserve it. But she wanted to use her pain, her journey, to be a help and a blessing to those who were so young but they could then care for their parents.
0: So you have the God who speaks to us? Who is the God we can speak to? There are times that we need that just so desperately. Ruth and I had the journey back yesterday from Turkey. We got back about eight last night. It was 39 and a half hours of travel, which uh, which is why we're probably incoherent today. But um, the joy behind this God as uh, Habakkuk found out, is that he's the God you can talk to. He's the God who will talk to you. But he's the God ultimately we're not going to understand. In verse 13 of chapter (coughs) 1, he's the God who's silent. In verse 16, he's the God who's rejected. (coughs) In verse 16, he's the God who's substituted. In verse 17, he's the God who permits things to happen that we think he should stop. And yet God continues, not to work things out as we would, but to do what we can't. You see, a number of times I've had people say to me, why does God, where is God, what is God doing? And the answer is, get rid of the idea of the get-out-of-jail-free card. You've not got a God who's just going to turn it off and sort it out. What you've got is a God who will always be there with you in the middle of it. That's the kind of God he is. He's the God who comes to us. And that's what Judah was going to find. They weren't going to get off the hook from what the Babylonians were going to bring. They were going to go right through the biggest experience of poo you could ever experience. It was going to be awful but God was going to be there. That this God who we can talk to is going to go on speaking to us. (coughs) And this God isn't going to work it out as we would, but he's going to meet us in the middle of it and stay with us right through it. Because ultimately, the message of Habakkuk chapter 1 is this. We've got a God who's there not going to leave us, he's not going to forsake us, he's always going to be there for us there to do what we really need oh what a blessing, thank you thanks a lot Sally you see the Ultimate with what God is doing in our lives is this. When you surrender your life to Jesus and he comes to you and you think, well, everything should be perfect and everything should be simple and everything should be straightforward, it doesn't work like that. What does work is that he comes and starts to work in us. And whereas he doesn't just make us perfect overnight, he starts to refine us. He starts to change us. And he'll go on doing that. Go on and on and on with that process. Until he can look at the gold that is us and see something different. You see, what happens with refining is that the refiner is there to heat up the gold. And the molten gold... As the gold is melted, the molten gold is given more and more heat and that brings the impurities to the surface. When they're skimmed off, ultimately you can look into the gold and see your own reflection. What God is doing is working on you and me until he can look into the gold of our lives and see his own reflection in us. And that's what is going on with everything. He speaks to us, we speak to him. It doesn't seem to make sense. But he's the God who is there with one intent, and that is that our lives might reflect Jesus. Do you remember that lovely phrase about the early church? People took note they'd been with Jesus. It wasn't that they said the right things. It was that they were the right kind of people. And that's the lovely joy and thrill about what our God is doing in us. He's making us progressively to be more and more and more like Jesus. And I love it for the reality. And you'll find as we walk through Habakkuk, it'll get more explicit. But I want you to remember these four things. He's the God you can talk to, whatever you're going through. Whatever's gone pear-shaped, whatever's gone wrong, he's the God you can talk to. He's the God who will speak to you because he won't leave you on your own Whatever you're going through, he will always come and be with you. It won't work out in the way that you thought it should work out, in the way that you would have told him to work it out. He will come, and he will work all things together for good to those who love God, because that's the kind of God he is. Because he is the God who is there, he will never stop being there for you. And you may say, well, hang on. I don't know God like that. Oh, that's the problem. Because that's how he wants you to know. It. He wants to be your friend, the joy of your heart, the love of your life, the one who is there for you. Now I'm going to run a, a slight risk. I want you to listen to me and not let the prejudices come up too quickly. Okay? Okay? Um, I don't know if you'd like a beer with me, but if you would, um, Tuesday night would be very appropriate. Uh, it'll be at the Keg and Egg. I don't know if you've met the Keg and Egg. It's um, on Mason Breloop. It's only open for guys, because we're going to actually push the guys a bit. It'll be at 6.30, my friend Eric, uh, and I will be hosting that together. Let's explain what deep spiritual things we're going to do. (laughs) You may be someone whose idea of a drink is um, a a Diet Coke or a fruit juice. That's absolutely great, don't care what you drink. That is not the issue. Except that nobody nobody is going to do anything that would not be honouring and glorifying to the Lord, whatever they choose to drink. But the idea is that we're going to come together drink together, eat dinner together. Talk with one another and pray together in a nasty, horrible, secular pub. All the places you shouldn't do it. We're going to do it. You may see, you can't do that. It's not right. No, we got the the publicans' permission, haven't we? All officially agreed. Uh, I've done this for years and years and years with with groups of guys because I just love what it means to come to the God who wants you to talk to him and give him the chance to talk to you and give us the chance to work it out together and discover that he's there. So if you're not the kind of guy who goes out and has a beer, that's absolutely fine. doesn't make any difference at all. If you are, that's absolutely fine. There's no restrictions and there's the whole point of this, is you want to come and glorify Jesus, learn from each other, grow together in God, make a difference in our world. In fact, some of these things we've even seen countries changed by what happened in those evenings, because it's amazing what happens when Christians pray. And you see, you may say, Well, why is it for guys? Because women feel that they have cornered the market on godliness. <laughs> and there is probably more than a little truth in that. And so in order to give the guys a chance to catch up a bit, we're going to do this once a month. Is that a fair digest? Yes. So we're going to come together. That's what we're going to do. It'll last a couple of hours. We hope you'll really enjoy it. And as I said, other groups like this, they tend to go on for years. Because men are not used to faith being fun. They're not used to being able to bleed over the table and be honest about whatever they want to be honest about or say absolutely nothing and just listen. But there will be no sermons, absolutely none. But there will be a lot of chance just to pray together, talk together. And if you don't feel that you can pray, fine. No condition, someone else will. The fun of this is, we want to grow together in God and see something happen in Wilmington soon. So, uh, the keg and egg, 6.30, Tuesday night. This Tuesday. And then we'll do it again next month. And then the next month. Now, if you've got the guts and the courage to come and accept the challenge, to come and have a beer with me Tuesday night. This has got a few people thinking, hang on, this isn't as it should. No, it's good. It's all good. It's all good. The other great thing about this is that people meet Jesus. And that's great as well. So Habakkuk is all about the God you talk to, the God who talks to you, the God where it doesn't make sense, but the God who is there to sort it all out. So for my last story, I want to... Is this being recorded? For my last story, if you're listening to this by technology, I want you to be careful with it. That's why I'm going to be very careful what I say. I was at one of these do's that we're talking about. And uh, one of the guys sitting around the table, who never said very much, but was the CEO of an enormous company in the U.S., really, really big one. And he said, oh, I've got a problem. I'd like you to pray about And So we all said, oh, well, what is it? He said, oh, my company has had one of its national divisions taken over by this particular government that is acting more like a banana republic than a responsible government. And they have asked for the payment of a particular amount of money as a bribe to stop them arresting all the nationals who work in executive positions for your company. So my friend was faced with a little problem what did he do as a believer? Did he pay a bribe to protect his senior management? Did he refuse the bribe, in which case this government was going to cut the company and close it? And we are not talking about $10,000, you know, we are talking about a really big company. And so there's the guy sitting around the table, they're looking at each other. What do we do? I said, look, this is easy. All we do is we will agree that every day at two o'clock, whatever we're doing, we're going to stop it, we're going to pray, wherever we are. Even if we just have to go to the the restroom. But we're going to stop and pray, and we're going to pray for so-and-so, we're going to pray for the company, we're going to pray for these guys whose liberty is at stake, we're going to pray that God does something. Okay. I said, how long have we got? And this guy said, well, I think we've got about six weeks. So we started praying. Six weeks to the day, this guy turns up and says to me, okay, thanks for the prayers. Really appreciate it. I've had an official notification from this particular government which you would all know about. You know, th- Again, this is not Banana Republic. They are not going to take any action against the company. Nothing to take action against. They're not going to take any action against our senior management. They're not going to do anything but allow us to continue in business uninterfered with by them and for all the foreseeable future. And so I had to sit with the guys and say, well prayed. That's what this is all about. But that's what Habakkuk is doing. He's saying, come on, let's get a relationship with God. Let's change the world. And if you read chapter one really carefully, you'll discover that Habakkuk doesn't talk about God. He talks about my God. He doesn't talk about Lord. He talks about my Lord. He talks about Yahweh, Jehovah. The Jews wouldn't even write it in full. They'd just breed. Because that meant the Lord God. But it's not Lord, it's my Lord. And when I left my church in Connecticut, they said, one of the things you taught us was you never talked about Jesus. You always talked about my Jesus. That's Habakkuk 1. It's realising the depth of this relationship and then going and changing the world for him. God bless you. Shall we pray? Lord, it's so simple. You put us in a world that's falling apart and it desperately needs us to come together to live as your people, to love you to honour you, not just as Lord, but my Lord. To recognise that we can talk to you. That you want to talk to us. That although it won't be easy or necessarily make sense, you're going to be there for us. And you're never going to leave us. And Lord, somehow take that, tie it together for us. Never let us forget that our job is to go and change this world with the love of the God who loves